Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Spotlight. I'm Annie Dickerson. And I'm Julie Lamb. Together, we're the founders of Good Egg Investments and creators of the Real Estate Accelerator. We help real estate investors and syndicators build their brands, find the right investors for their deals, and scale their businesses so they can do more and bigger deals. We believe that everyone has the power to make an impact through raising capital and helping people achieve financial freedom through real estate. We invite you to join the Real Estate Syndication Spotlight Facebook group so we can amplify our impact together. We know you're going to love this episode. And hey, be sure to stick around to the end of the show because we're going to reveal how you can be our next guest on one of the fastest growing real estate podcasts on the planet. Ready? Let's go. Welcome back, friends, to the Real Estate Syndication Spotlight Podcast. I'm your host, Annie Dickerson, and today I'm thrilled to introduce you to Sam Silverman. Sam, how are you today? Good, Annie. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thrilled to share your story with our listeners today. So start by, you know, people get into real estate in all kinds of crazy ways. So start by telling our listeners how you got into the real estate space entirely accidentally like I think most people do <laughs> so uh, right out of college got into a software sales role and a quick plug for software sales it is the best first career for a lot of people right very low barrier mm-hmm. entry very high upside in terms of compensation yeah. where it's a meritocracy in the right place right where you can earn based on performance versus based on tenure um, anything like that in the right place right some cultures aren't like that but you started doing fairly well. And when you do well in sales, your income quickly, quickly grows just solely based on performance. So had additional dollars. I'm like, I understand the concept of passive income, right? At things that pay you when you're not putting your time into them. Um, Starting getting single family houses, bought eight single family houses, realized that was not passive at all, um, even with a management team in place. So spent a lot of time researching, you know, shows like this where you're, hearing from folks who are doing other things outside of the traditional, you know, buy a house, 20% down, rent it out, um, have a manager in place, and then, you know, buy more once you have 20% down. And so started aggressively investing into syndications myself as an LP. I believe I got my first 10 or 12 deals that way. And then from there, kind of joined a mastermind group as well, understood there's actually a really big need on the um, sourcing capital investor side of the house where, that's going to how I broke into um, this space as well. Wow. You are a doer, it sounds like. You don't sit still. You're like, you find the next thing and you're like, okay, I'm going to try this. Okay, this is working, but I don't like this part. Okay, I'm going to keep going and try the next thing. I love that. Um Tell me a little bit more about your sales background, um, because I know there must be a lot that crosses over into what you're doing now through raising capital for these syndications. Tell us a little bit about how your sales experience kind of helps um, or plays a role in what you're doing now. Yeah. So raising capital is 100% sales, right? It's it's more relationship-based sale. It's not as if you're pushing something, but it still has all the same competencies of sales, right? I think the biggest one is understanding the profile of person that you're speaking with 
right? Where if the better you understand how someone operates, what they're going through on a day-to-day basis, the better you can relate and align information that you're sharing with them to better meet their needs, which is sales, right? You're all you're doing is solving a problem for someone, help them may, maybe see something that they didn't know they needed or they didn't know that was available, right? So it's really sharing your information in a way that they can digest it, right? Say, for example, you have two people, and I think this is a really simple one, right? Say, for example, you know, you're looking at raising capital and you have someone who is coming from kind of old money, right? They've been wealthy their entire life. Their risk tolerance may, may be pretty high because for them, they probably have never experienced what it's like to struggle financially. They may have had hardships in other areas where they you know, put a lot of effort into something and, and achieve something. But in terms of financial hardship, it may have not been there. So for them, all they see is upside, right? Whereas if you take someone who may be, you know, for example, an immigrant background where they're, they're first generation here and they've scraped and fought their entire way, you know, coming from nothing to building a life they're really proud of financially, they may be more resistant to risk in a certain way, maybe more about downside protection because they know what it's like to not have that, right? So then the better you can understand, and there's kind of just two very broad groups of, of folks, the better you understand how someone is raised, how someone comes up and their story, the better you can align to them what you're doing and the better, the better so you have a positioning what you're doing to make sense for them. So I think sales the exact same way. It's understanding who your buyer or end recipient is and understanding how you can align to what they're doing and how they think. And the more similar you are to them, the better it is. So I think kind of my background in sales, the bulk of my investors do stem from people in tech, executives in sales, um, people who kind of have that background. Now it's branched out through referrals and kind of getting different lines of work, but the core competency is still is people in some kind of a sales capacity or executive in a tech company type role. Yeah, that's such sage advice to really try to understand the investor, understand where they're coming from, what their pain points are, what they're trying to achieve. And that way you can help align what you're offering with what they might need. Or if they don't need what you're you're selling or trying to help them invest in, then maybe helping them to find a different direction. So I love that. Yeah, Tell us and- a little bit about the the oh go ahead. Yeah, I was saying, and also I think the ability of telling someone, hey, this isn't for you is the yeah. most powerful sales tool in the entire world, right? Mm-hmm. It makes you become more desirable, but also helps you like credibility-wise. If someone's goals are, you know, a really big cash flow play, for example, and this deal you're buying in a three-cap market that has immense value at upside, that's not the deal for them. And you telling them that builds immense credibility, which helps them ask for referrals helps you become more of a reliable piece of information for them once you have a deal that fits their criteria, right? Your credibility is a really big piece of it. I think people too often look at this as a really short game, right? Of like, okay, I need to finish my raise. It's basically like, like, like a quota if you're kind of raising for a deal and you're looking at it as a number. When if you look at it and take a step back of, okay, this is a, a long-term relationship with someone that if I gear them the right way, they may invest with me forever, or send people my way that makes sense, or just open other doors for you and build relationships that way. I think the long game piece of it is something that's missed really often with a lot of people who are starting out doing their first deals as just, I need to get this done versus I need to really build a relationship the right way because that will have a yield of lifetime value of a customer or an investor. It could be 10 to 100x of what you're doing if you just rush it. 
Yeah, I think that's so spot on. When I think about times when I'm sitting on the other side of the table, when somebody's trying to sell me on a product or a service, you know, you could tell the people who are trying to genuinely help you and who care about you, and those who are just trying to fill a quota like you're talking about and just get that quick sale. And you're right. I mean, this is a relationships business. It's all about, um, it's not about the quick sale. It's about that long-term relationship. And I love what you said about, you know, don't be afraid to help show them maybe this isn't the right investment for you and help guide them in a different direction. That doesn't mean they'll stay away forever. That just builds that deeper trust so that when they're ready or when it's the right deal, they'll come back because they know that you're a trusted advisor. You're not trying to just sell them on something. Yeah. And it helps too. And it also opens your eyes too, as an operator where, okay, these are areas that investors are curious about or have a desire for. Maybe you start looking to find more things that fit that criteria. So you have your list of people already. Okay. If I've had something that hits this criteria, I have these X number of people I can go reach back out to. And I'd have credibility with them by telling them, no, at first, this isn't for you. That when it comes up, your likelihood of converting that person to an investor is far, far higher. Mm. Tell us a little bit about the mindset around sales and hopping on a call with an investor. I know a lot of people I talk to are like, oh my gosh, I'm so intimidated by that part. How do I ask them about money and finances? That gets so awkward. How do you navigate that? So that's actually something so we've used. And so I, I still run a sales org for a tech company today. And an assessment that we use before bringing on new hires is, What's their level of comfortability when talking about money? Because it's an area, especially when you're selling larger ticket items, right? We've had deals that are you know, multiple seven figures per year for long-term contracts that are meaningful, right? In terms of overall dollars associated to it. So folks who aren't comfortable talking about money, likely the wrong field for you, right? You have to be very, very comfortable doing it and not in a way that delivery matters a ton for it as well. But if someone's handing you 50, 100, a quarter million dollars, and you're timid and asking for it, and not in a way of saying you're pushing them to something that they're not comfortable doing, but more just being very upfront with the expectations around it, that likely the, the confidence piece of it is to give them second thoughts, right? Where I can take, can I use the example, say, I love going out to eat. And if it's a restaurant that like, wow, these five things look really good. And I ask the server, what do you recommend? And they say, all of it's good. No shot. Like that is a horrible, horrible answer. Like I get so excited and they're like, okay, this thing, if you're in this mood, or maybe this thing, if you're in this mood and that's it, because it's decisive, it's clear where I think it's portrayed the same thing to your investors is that your people view it so many times as I'm making an ask from them. When really, if you, if you reframe your thinking to I'm bringing them an opportunity that they may have not known about, right? This is actually a favor to them, at least in the educational side. Like I wasn't did that for me before I bought eight single family houses. Um, those actually panned out well because of how the market went the last few years. But you can never bet on that with single family as it's really market dependent versus being driven like a business and valued like an actual equation. Um, but yeah, I think just being direct and being comfortable talking about it and, and, and reframe your thinking as to this is an ask versus this is actually me sharing something of value. And speaking of those single family homes, Tell us a little bit more about that transition, because I know 
a lot of people get stuck there, right? They've they've maybe done some rental properties and they want to scale up to multifamily and they don't know how to get started or they're intimidated by the process. It's a whole new ball game, right? So tell us about how you made that transition. So my transition was a bit different just because I'm like, okay, I get the concept of it. And I started selling off the houses using that capital to go invest as an LP. And I kind of viewed investing as an LP as a very, very highly paid educational course. Yeah. Right? I'm like, I spent six figures for college. That was, depending on how you look at it, a waste of money, right? Where education side of it, relationships, experience, awesome education. Eh. But I think when you look at it as, okay, if I'm investing you know, 50 grand into a deal, not only am I getting the returns of that deal, which the last few years have been excellent, but more so the, you can see, okay, what's, what's the communication style like? What's the experience like? What am I seeing that works well? What am I seeing that if I'm as an investor, I would absolutely never want again? So it gives you kind of the, you know, sort of parenting, right? Parenting either gives you a great job of showing you what you should do or what you shouldn't do. Being kind of a similar boat. Um, so I just started investing just as a limited partner in a bunch of deals, right? Saw it working, kept doubling down. Um, and then from there, actually joined a mastermind group and realized that the there's a huge need on the capital side. Like if you look at kind of breaking into this space, there's two things that matter. You find money or you find a deal. Everything else besides that at the entry level does not matter. Down the road, you look at it of, okay, your balance sheet, your net worth, your liquidity, those things you can be brought into deals as a sponsor or a key principal. But outside of that, for people who are starting out, they're not in a position like that to go do that and that for the deals. So it's more so find a deal or find money and nothing else really matters until those things happen. Yeah, that's exactly what we tell people early on too, is they, they say, oh, I want to do it all. And we're like, okay, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's a lot of work. There's a lot of different roles to play. And I think it's it's wise to counsel people to say, okay, well, which side are you more interested in starting out and maybe start there? But it sounds like that mastermind group um, was, a, is a, was a big piece of you being able to get into the space and scale as quickly as you have. Yeah, it was more so a few things, right? One, kind of being surrounded by people who are doing things, which is always motivating, right? I think second, it really helped me see that, okay, this is an actual need because with a corporate job, right? It's it's tough to dedicate, you know, tens of hours each week to going to flying someone to look at a deal, underwriting deals, where if you focus on like one specific area, you can get very good in that area. And you look at anything there is to do in the entire world, the top person doing that specific task and making a ton of money doing it. Right. Like even like gardening, you know, landscaping, right. Those people are making seven <laughs> right. figures doing that because they're the best yeah. in that field. So for me, I'm like, okay, if I can get very good at one area of this and go very, very deep in that side of it, that's a whole career versus being very average. A lot of things It's very easy to replace people who are very average. Um, yes. Then in terms of the, the group as well, it was more so just people. It was almost saying yes before I knew I could do something. Like my first raise was a million dollars in 10 days with no investor base. Like not, not like 10 days about, okay, you know, 10 days from finding out about the deal to funding, which was an awful experience. Like never, <laughs> ever sign up to do that. Um, now it's different, but like that million dollars in 10 days was absolutely brutal. I probably made 450 cold calls that week to people I knew, oh. kind of always cashing the favors of, you know, hey, if you ever do something like this, let me know. And then yeah. the you know, the battle of kind of being your first deal, bank that's not also experience, but kind of your first deal, 
but then also just timing, right? Like I know a ton of people who are worth multiple eight figures, multiple seven figures and having 50 grand lying around, it's just all liquidity, right? Like investments tied up, personal reasons, whatever it may be, timing's a big piece of it as well. Oh my goodness. 450 calls in 10 days. I cannot even imagine, but hold on. Talk a little bit about the balance between, because I know you're still working a full-time job. And so how do you balance that? Are you doing this nights and weekends? How are you sort of balancing the two? So the way I view it is it's a sprint, right? Like it's a, it's a sprint. Um, With my, my W2, there is kind of a clear, breaking point um, in the next few years and kind of a transitionary period. So for me, like it's more of just a sprint um, to get to that point. So it's, it's very heavily involved in both areas right now. Um, and more so kind of cutting back the real estate side to make sure I can still do my number one priorities. So for me, I'm very, very big on, on loyalty, right? I've, I've committed to, I've worked for my same boss, three companies the last six and a half years. Um, and for me, like I keep my word and, and making sure I committed to him and, and hold through my part of the bargain there is still um, a big piece. And then kind of scaling up whatever my time will allow on the real estate side. But it's been a lot of, right? The first lift is always the biggest and then it becomes easier and easier to do the same things you did, right? So like you look at it as a runner, they start eight minutes, like your mile starts ticking down if you're a runner, right? So like now each million dollars raised is becoming easier and easier to do because you have people who are repeat investors now seeing results right? Seeing updates, seeing projections, seeing those things. And now referrals kick in as well. So some people now invest in deals without even saying, we don't even communicate, right? And the line of communication is always open, but it's more so they're confident in what they've seen previously. Business plans are very similar. Deals look the same. They're seeing the, the, the repeatability of it. So for them, it's more of talking about, about planning, about what's coming in the future versus consistently selling, so you're still always working on adding new folks to your list, adding new folks to potentially invest in deals, just because if you do a lot of deals, your people just get tapped, right? In terms of how they diversify, how they actually have dollars for it. Because I'd say there's kind of two kinds of investors, right? At least in, in my group, they kind of fall into two main categories. One being the more senior person who's got, you know, X in a brokerage account or in other areas that they're moving over based on how you perform. The other is more up and coming folks in software sales, similar to you know, myself who have, every time they have X dollars they invested, but it's more so as they earn it, right? So it's kind of periods of time that way. So what you're realizing is that each deal you're doing, you're having about half of two thirds are repeat investors, but then the half other side of that is all new folks coming in who then become repeat investors. So it's, it's your, your, all keeps growing and scaling. But if you do a high volume of deals and keep pushing yourself that way, um, you always have to find new people still. Yes, indeed. Well, tell us a little bit more about that piece, the the ongoing. So you did this big push, you sort of got your investor base started through a lot of that cold calling and started to get people into these deals. And now it's getting easier and easier with each deal that you do with those repeat investors and referrals. How are you staying on top of um, communicating with investors? Are you doing outbound marketing or at this point, is it mainly referrals um, coming in? So I don't do any kind of monthly updates or anything like that, just because a lot of people, I will, once we don't have enough deals to go out every month, right? Like we've had a deal at least this year from May until now, we'll do 10 deals, right? So we have consistent communication going out to investors just based on deals and deals closing. So we Mm -hmm. haven't had kind of a lull period that other, you know, owner operators, right? Someone who's actually raising capital for their own deals may have if they do two or three deals a year. 
So in my end, I've, I've more so partnered with operators who have that area of expertise. We're all helping the balance sheet. I'll help on the capital raise, help the investor relations, due diligence, et cetera. But I'm not spending the bulk of my time doing to do two or three deals a year where I'm getting a larger chunk of that deal. I mean, smaller pieces of more deals. So for me, I've had, the, I've had that where I don't have to have a daily email go out to them for them to stay engaged. We've done enough deals that they've seen. Um, definitely something I want to work on is more content. But that kind of goes to the time aspect of it, where I still do a lot of outbound LinkedIn prospecting. Um, that's the biggest area for myself. Like my background is in building SDR teams, where SDRs, their sole job is to book meetings with key executives and target accounts to then pass off to you know, more tenured salespeople in the organization. So I'm taking that approach to LinkedIn for the investing side of the house. Because if you look at most financial investors on LinkedIn, it is pretty brutal, right? The um, kind of coming from like a big name, you know, financial services company, like it's not pretty, especially with all the regulations they have around what they can say and what they can't say. They're kind of put in a box that way. So there's a lot of opportunity to have better outreach to people and understand how to profile them ahead of time. Um, to make your conversation relevant, right? There's, yeah. you know, you look at a VP of sales, they're a great profile of an investor, but they're getting reached out to by 20 people a week trying to sell them something. So understanding how they actually think helps a lot to cut through all the noise. Yeah, yeah absolutely. To get their attention and cut through the noise, like you're saying. Um, Sam, I wanted to ask you before we wrap up, uh, I wanted to ask you, so you've seen such tremendous success in a short amount of time, and you've got this stable and growing base of investors. When you look down the pipe at what's in the future for you, where are you hoping to take this and what's your ultimate vision for this business? So the way I view it is I want to be able to have different investments for different investors, right? Like I think our core competency right now is a value add multifamily, right? You know, it's not sexy, but it works, right? Like buying a class B deal and pushing it to a, to a B plus, pushing rents $200. Like it is very simple. It's very in demand. There will always be need for workforce housing. Um, we'll see inflation keep taking it up, at least in my opinion. So it's very, very safe and consistent. Um, but I like to get into things like self-storage, like mobile home parks, different debt and equity funds. Um, I think there's still upside in, in Bitcoin and different storage spaces. Like there's a lot of different areas to get into it. So the way I view it is like a full private equity firm that basically has different levels of investments and different types of investments and asset classes for different people. Like if someone wants to diversify, I want them to be all through myself. I think that a big piece of it for a busy executive, right? Say you're a CEO of a company. You don't want to have 10 relationships or you may want to have one or two that allow you to have the same diversifications as having 10. And having your one, one, one person you trust to help you do so. So that's the long game of where I want to get to is being able to then bring diversity investments to um, investors. But it's a longer process. Like for myself, every operator I've ever partnered with, I've written them a check on my personal capital first. Like I'll take big risks with my money, with investors' money, I won't. Right. So they that know by investing through myself, I've gone through that process, put my money there first, seen the experience, seen the results. Um, so they can go in there with a lot higher level of confidence because right now how the market's been the last few years, everyone's down operator, right? It's like, you really don't know what you're getting into. Um, right. So I think kind of the ability of having someone you trust who has been there beforehand, right? You know, past performance never is never indicative of a future performance, but knowing that they've been there beforehand, you at least know you're getting into that with someone who's a decent person. Like, I think a big thing people miss, and I know we're probably running over here, but the uh, people 
evaluate deals based on returns, which is probably the last thing you should evaluate, right? Like it's always people, yeah, right. location, then the deal yep. itself. And I'm like, the way I view it personally, I've said this before, is like, I manage my mama's money. And if I want to put her money yeah. somewhere with that person, like there's no shot yeah. I'm ever giving them my own money or partnering with them on a deal. It's just it's a, it's such like an easy way of the gut check test. Like this yeah. business is so numbers driven, but there is such a big value on the gut check. Yeah, I loved that. Yeah, managing your mom's money. I do the same, actually. I think about that too. And it's clear, you know, from everything that you're saying that you so genuinely care about your investors. And that's what we need in this space. Cause, you know, I think so many people, especially when they find you online, they, they're worried, oh, is this a scam? You know, everybody's yeah. heard the stories, right? And so, you know, just to, to know that you're out there on behalf of your investors, putting your own money on the line first and really taking the risk on their behalf. And then as you find these really great opportunities, then you're sharing them with them. It saves them time and it gives them the opportunity to get into these deals that they otherwise wouldn't come across. So it's a win-win. Yeah, it is. Like It's always interesting hearing some folks who are super educated, very successful in their careers, who just don't really understand private placements at all. They just haven't been exposed to it. So I think there's two parts, but like one, helping get exposure to the right deals. And then two, just under, having people understand they have access to them. There's all these like miss, you know, limiting beliefs of commercial real estate have to be worth, you know, $20 million to get started when, you know, the, the average Joe has hundreds of thousands of dollars in a 401k from a previous job, they can go leverage for something like this, right? So it, it really does give more access. I think part of it is the educational side, which you guys do a great job of in helping educate folks. Yeah, it's, it's the it's the education, the access. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sam, I know there's a lot more we could dig into, and I hope our listeners will dig in with you further. Um, you have such an inspirational story, and you've seen such success. So, tell our listeners if they did want to follow up with you and learn more about all that you're doing, what's the best place that they can go? So, I'm super active on LinkedIn. Um, Sam Silverman on there, and then my website is SilvermanCapital.co. Um, or it's my email is sam at silvermancapital.co as well. All right. You guys heard it. You've now got his, his email. So reach out to reach out to Sam, follow up with him and um, connect with him. Cause he's a, he's got so much wisdom to share. Sam, thank you so much for being here with us and sharing your story and your wisdom and your insights. To all of our listeners, be sure to follow up with Sam to learn more. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Real Estate Syndication Spotlight. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Spotlight. If you are a real estate investor or syndicator who would like to be on this podcast, please visit syndicationspotlight.com. And please also join the Real Estate Syndication Spotlight Facebook group so we can connect with you and learn more about you. And if you got something out of this episode, we'd love it if you could subscribe to this show and give us a rating and review. We promise to read your feedback and take action to continue to make this show even better and more valuable for the real estate syndication community. My name is Annie Dickerson. And I'm Julie Lamb. Thanks for listening. And thank you for being a part of the real estate syndication spotlight community.